0: Welcome to the October 2021 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. You know, October is the month of Halloween, and as genealogists, that means we likely have researching the death of our ancestors on our minds. Well, this episode is gonna help you out with that. Obituaries are some of the most sought after death-related records for genealogists, and author Shannon Combs Bennett is here to talk about the history of these important records and where you can find them. In our Best Websites for Genealogy segment, Sunny Morton will continue on with our theme by giving us a head-to-head comparison of the biggest cemetery websites from her article called Heavyweights. In our DNA Deconstructed segment, Your DNA Guide, Diane Southard, is back to help answer the question, can I remove my DNA data from online? And then we'll wrap the episode up at the editor's desk where Family Tree Magazine editor Andrew Cook is gonna give us a quick tour of the rest of the September, October, 2021 special issue called Grave Research. But first let's kick off this episode with some tree talk and we'll do that with social media editor, Rachel Christian. There's a lot more to Halloween than just candy and costumes this spooky holiday has a long history as well as a rich ethnic background. And that kind of got social media editor Rachel Christian wondering what the DNA test results would look like if Halloween were to take a DNA test. And guess what? She's here to give us that answer. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. This is so cool. I, I I like this article. I just, I think it's it's cute. And you really dug into the background, the history, the, the genealogy, if you will, of Halloween. How did the DNA test results come out for Halloween?
1: Yeah, well, thank you. First of all, this was a fun little article that me and the editorial team came up with just to present the origins of a holiday, but kind of mirror the format of, you know, DNA test results. So... The results are in, and just based off our research, Halloween is mostly European, which probably doesn't come as a surprise to anybody. I think most people know that Halloween comes from All Hallows' Eve, which refers to the Catholic observances of All Saints and All Souls' Day. But what this article is kind of meant to do is show that there are so many different cultures and traditions around the world that shaped the holidays we know it today, so... This was our kind of fun way to explore some of those other traditions. So we decided that, like, we had to make up our own percentages, obviously. <laughs> but we decided to attribute 40% of Halloween's ethnicity to the British Isles, mostly due to the Gaelic festival of um, Samhain, I believe is how you pronounce it. And like so many other Uh, Traditions around the globe. It celebrates kind of the end of the harvest season and the beginning of the darkest time of the year. And it is a time when the borders between worlds are thinner, so to speak. And so, you know, spirits, um, souls of the dead, can cross them maybe more easily. And Samhain, like a lot of different traditions, you know, incorporate offerings of food, wearing costumes, wearing masks, and. Just a general connection to otherworldly beings, as well as the souls of the dead.
0: And, and that was celebrated just about the same time as Halloween, October 31st to November 1st, right?
1: Yeah, as far as we can tell.
0: All right, so 40% British Isles. Um, and then you mentioned the Catholic Church influence on it. What was the percentage there? And, and where where did you uh, put the little pin on the map? <laughs> <laughs>
1: So we went with um, 27% of Halloween's ethnicity from uh, Italy and Greece. So because the Catholic Church calls Rome its home, that's why we decided to attribute that percentage to Italy. Yes, and that is in reference to the Catholic observance of All Saints Day, which is a feast day that just honors all those who have died and, and gone to heaven. So if you're not Catholic, you might not know that All Saints Day is traditionally celebrated with Food and parades. And the little kids, kiddos will dress up as their favorite saints. So there's a costume element to that celebration.
0: Interesting. Okay. And there's the the Roman festival that you mentioned in there. So that's the other influence in there that centers this pin right around Italy and Greece. The Pomona, is that what it's called?
1: Yeah. I So as we were researching this, we found that it's been theorized that the tradition of bobbing for apples comes from a Roman feast meant to honor um, the goddess Pomona, who is goddess of fruit and fruit trees. So now that I'm thinking about it, I might think of that festival as more of a cousin holiday to, mm-hmm. to Halloween <laughs> rather than part of its DNA. But that was the thinking behind that. And that was interesting. Um, yeah, I've
0: always I- wondered about that. What What in the world apples and bobbing for apples had to do <laughs> with the other sure. part, but that would make sense. There's just a little bit of this uh, influence coming from different areas.
1: Right. As far as I can tell, the celebration honoring Pomona is more of a fertility and abundance, more of like a harvest festival. Mm-hmm. But we decided to count it because bobbing for apples is, you know, traditionally a part of our fall celebrations, including Halloween.
0: Ah, oh, Okay. And
1: And the next
0: section of the ethnicity pie here kind of maybe sheds a little bit of light on why jack-o'-lanterns became part of Halloween. Tell us about that.
1: Yes. So this was probably the most interesting part of writing this article to me was researching what's called the Polish Halloween. I looked up how to pronounce it. I I think it's (laughs) Jadę, Jadę, something similar to that. If you look it up on Google Translate, that word actually translates to grandfather's. Um, And I think this holiday is known as kind of like Grandfather's Eve or like Forefather's Eve rather. And it is a holiday that is not as silly and lighthearted as our Halloween, obviously. It's much more serious and it's all about honoring our ancestors. So some scholars have suggested that this holiday has influenced our tradition of jack-o'-lanterns because the ancient kind of Slavic feast involved making masks, like wooden or clay masks, or I think sometimes even carving gourds to be masks. And they would wear those kind of to honor slash impersonate the, the dead, their deceased relatives. So that's an unanticipated part of these DNA results, but I definitely the one that I was the most interested to learn about. And so we attributed 15% of Halloween's ethnicity to this slavic feast so this eastern european tradition
0: Uh, once again dna influencing facial features (laughs) at least of our pumpkins (laughs) all right so we've got 15 percent of halloween's dna left what is that attributed to
1: so we could not in good conscience give the halloween its dna test results without talking about some of the Mexican holidays that we're familiar with and not familiar with. As I was researching, I stumbled across this late summer festival honoring an Aztec goddess whose name I will not even attempt to pronounce. (laughs) Um, But it's a similar tradition, right? I mean, this was a holiday meant to honor kind of a guardian of the dead. And then the Spanish came over and I'm like merged, you know, their Catholic traditions with the native traditions. And I'm not sure if the connection between that holiday and what we know today is Dia de Muertos or Day of the Dead. Mm-hmm. But Day of the Dead certainly is part of um, how we understand Halloween and all these related celebrations today. I mean, ever since I started looking for it, I see sugar skulls and I think of the Disney movie Coco. even. Day of the Dead, I think, plays a, a larger role in our North American Halloween than we often give it credit for. So that's why 10% of Halloween's ethnicity was attributed to Mexico. And like all DNA tests, there's just some that we can't account for everything, right? All DNA ethnicity results should be taken with a grain of salt. As much as we want to have everything figured out, we thought it was most accurate and responsible of us to say that 5% is just uncertain. (laughs) I mean, these are just a small sampling of all the traditions around the globe that are meant to honor the dead and honor our ancestors. You know, traditions that I'm sure shaped Halloween our modern Halloween across the world in one way or another. So to account for all of those and all of our error, 5% is just unknown, uncertain. Well, that, that
0: makes sense. That's very <laughs> responsible of you all.
1: <laughs> well, it's very serious academic work we're doing, you know. Oh, yes, reading. yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> cool. Well, I imagine that you'll be putting this out to social media and getting uh, other genealogists input on this.
1: Yes. I would love to know how our readers celebrate Halloween, what traditions they grew up with in their families. So um, we did put out a question to our audience on social media, so we will leave that link in the show notes for you to go check out that conversation and add your own answers.
0: That sounds great. So you can find Family Tree Magazine at uh, Facebook and Twitter and uh, all of the social media platforms. And of course, as Rachel says, we'll have links in the show notes. Pretty fun. Okay, well, I can can rest easy now that I know the ethnicity and makeup of of (laughs) Halloween. Uh, (laughs) It's a good kickoff to this episode. We've got more obituaries and cemeteries and things to talk about. So we will do that. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you, Lisa. It was fun. Today we are talking obituaries and the important role that they play in your genealogy. Now obituaries can reveal a lot of really interesting information about your ancestors. And in the article, A Genealogist's Guide to Finding and Using Historical Obituaries, author Shannon Combs Bennett explains everything you need to know about using and finding obituaries.
2: Hi Shannon. Hi Lisa, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for
0: being here. This is a terrific article, and I, I just think of obituaries as being such a cornerstone of, of the work that we do. It's often one of the first places people
2: start, right? Yeah, it, it is. They're pretty accessible for most people. Um, sometimes you have to dig a little deeper, though, further back in time you go. But they seem to be one of the basic, I guess you could call staples, bread and butter type uh, documents that genealogists try to find.
0: And we typically find them in newspapers. So I'd love to start there because obituaries are not the only kind of death record we're finding in newspapers, right?
2: No, there's it's not. There can be actually several different types of death records Published in a newspaper. Of course, the obituary is the most common, but you know you can also have uh, funeral announcements. So the you might not get the obituary, but maybe you can find that you know uh, the announcement that this funeral home is servicing this family, or that this the wake will occur at such and such place, or the religious ceremony will occur at this church with you know graveside services. Um, In addition to that, you sometimes can find uh, what were called for a long time, cards of thanks, where families would put um, articles in the newspaper, essentially in the advertisement uh, personal type section, thanking people for coming and participating in uh, the service of their loved one. So there's a wide variety of different types of information um, that if you don't know it's there, no reason to go look for it. Exactly.
0: I remember I was doing some newspaper research um, in the British newspaper archives uh, for my husband's mm-hmm. family, and I was floored. Now, this isn't really a death notice, but it's death related. And there was an entire coroner's inquest published in the newspaper. Yeah. And I I didn't realize that we could find something like that. So it's wonderful to see the, the depth of the kinds of information that surround the death of a person that could be found in newspapers,
2: right? And those aren't as common here in the United States. But right. if your loved one died in a larger city, you can sometimes find those in the newspapers. Um, I was doing some research and found uh, in from San Francisco, and they have published books of coroner's inquests, so they're not in newspapers. But the announcement was in the newspaper that there was an mm-hmm. inquest. And then I could go to the, um, the library. Thankfully, these were all digitized and find them online where I would find all sorts of information about the person, their family, the circumstances of their death. And if you're doing family medical histories, sometimes those can be real gold mines.
0: Yes, well, okay, so let's take a moment and talk about the history of obituaries. Because, you know, when we understand, as you know, the history of any kind of genealogical record, then we do a lot better job of utilizing it. So um, give us a little bit of a background story on obituaries. How long have they been around?
2: Sure, so you can find obituaries in even some of the earliest colonial newspapers here in the United States. Um, simply sometimes they were, you know, somebody passing through or information from, you know, they had died abroad and it has come back and there might be a little note in a paper. Um, in the early 1800s, it you can kind of, it's gonna sound kind of strange but you can see themes developing around newspaper obituaries. And sometimes, you know, if it was a very important person to the community, you're gonna be more than likely to find it. And sometimes these early, unfortunately I should say, these early newspaper um obituaries, they don't have a lot of family information, but you'll find all sorts of virtuous prose written about them, I guess you could say, because they were, you know, talking about, you know, how godly and worthy they were and those types of things. Um, Then the obituary started to morph and actually became a part of the Personal and advertisement section of the newspaper. So one reason you may not find information in an ob- obituary for your ancestor is because the family didn't have the money to pay for the obituary to put, be put in, and uh, if they weren't a real prominent person, they wouldn't get the you know prime real estate on, in the actual reading sections. And so you know yeah, if your family were on the poorer side. You might not find anything about them, unfortunately. And then, as the 20th century came in, it started once again these I want to say, not necessarily a celebration of death, but a celebration of people's accomplishments. Mm-hmm. So, you start finding late 1800s into the early 20th century is what. Is how the obituary, as we know it today, started to evolve. Um, it went from maybe one or two lines about a person dying to, you know, three and four paragraphs about them, their families, especially if they had, you know, been a pensioner or a veteran, um, were a pioneer of a town. The early 20th century saw a lot of those people who had, you know, really struck it out west for their fame and fortune um, start passing away in those towns. And sometimes you would even find the obituary not only in the place where they died, but in their hometowns back further to the east. So you might find obituaries, especially for those, I guess, pioneering folk, you could call them, um, back where they came from.
0: That's a great point. And that's really kind of a nice newspaper research clue, because I think it even expands beyond obituaries, which is that idea of people often started back East, but then relocated out West. And those, particularly, I think, with the telegraph coming into play, they could send that article back and get it to all those people who would be really interested to know whatever happened to that person.
2: Right. And, of course, now in the 21st century, we're moving more and more away from print newspapers for the obituaries, and we're going to almost completely digital newspapers for the obituaries and digital obituary sites. Um, I know when I've had several of my uh, close family members in the last 10 years who have passed away, the funeral homes are even offering to put obituaries on their sites. And when my mother passed away, I was speaking with the funeral home director and they had kept records. This was um, in Texas. And they had records going back several decades with written obituaries that you know, if you called the funeral home, you could see if they had a written up, not necessarily was ever published in the paper because the family couldn't afford it, but the funeral home had it.
0: How interesting. I would imagine it's true that in small towns, you might be more likely mm-hmm. to find obituaries than perhaps in Chicago.
2: Um, yeah, because you know everybody knows everybody. Small hometown mm-hmm. newspaper; those would be more likely to have the longer, more in-depth. Um, information written about a person talking about their family and their, you know, where they came from, what they did, you know, if they were the pillar of a community or even just, you know, a local farmer and then the cities are, unfortunately, unless you were a prominent citizen, that's where you're more than likely to find a paragraph or less, maybe only even a few sentences, you know, first and last name age died on this date and maybe all you get. Unfortunately. <laughs> oh,
0: okay. So let's talk about where to find these historical newspapers.
2: Sure. Um, where do we start? Okay. Well, there's a lot of different newspapers online. Um, of course, the Library of Congress Chronicling America is a great start. Um, start there. See if one of your local newspapers or the place that you're researching local to that uh, see if they have a newspaper for the time frame out there. One, because it's free. I mean, you gotta start with the free sources first. Um, Family Search also has a free obituary, historical obituary site that you can search. And then you can move into the paid sites where there's newspapers.com and Ancestry, uh, Genealogy Bank. They all have um, obviously newspapers and then obituaries as a part of it. Sometimes you can also, contact the local library for the place the person had died. I've had good luck calling. um, I'm originally from Indiana and calling around to the various county libraries and unfortunately they don't have a lot of the newspapers digitized but, you know, for a small fee, they were willing to send me a photocopy. And in some cases now I can get emailed PDFs for a, f- a few dollars. Just And, you know, and to support the local library, I'm okay with doing that because our local libraries need a lot of support. So don't give up if you can't find it digitized, is what I'm trying to say. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of places out there, especially for older newspapers, but, you know, just be resourceful, I guess you could say.
0: Well, and you talked about online indexes. So sometimes we don't get the actual OBIT, right? But we get enough information out of the index that we could then go track it down in person.
2: Yeah, that's very true. I've used those several times. One of the links that is in the the article is to the Dayton, Ohio index. Um, And you can put in as much information as you know sometimes I find it's easier to start with a little bit of information and then you know sort through and add details to weed through the, the large number but all it will give you is the person's name the date of publication so not even the date of death so it you know it's somewhere in that time frame and then the page, issue, uh, column number, so that you can contact the Dayton Public Library and they can help get you the paper. And there's a lot of the libraries are like that.
0: Shannon Combs Bennett, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Let's say you took a DNA test a few years ago and your results are on the testing company's website. But now you've decided you don't want them there anymore. Can you delete your DNA data? Your DNA guide, Diane Southern, is here to help answer that question.
3: Hi, Diane. Hi, Lisa, and thanks for asking this question. I think it comes up more often than I would expect.
0: Yeah, and I think it's probably coming up more lately because people are talking about privacy, they're kind of rethinking or just giving more thought to whether they want to keep, you know, personal DNA results out on websites. So Let's tackle the the question up front, can we remove our DNA results from a testing company's website?
3: Yeah, well, the answer there is a confident maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Why am I not surprised? (laughs) It's not the way it always is. So, I mean, yes, for sure, your DNA sample is owned by you, not by the DNA testing company. So you can request that your DNA sample be deleted Um, or your DNA. So there's two parts really. So you've got your DNA sample, the actual physical sample at the testing company, and then you've got the results that they generated through their, their reporting system. So there are really two parts. You can A, remove the DNA profile that's on their website from their website. So delete it off their website. But then there's your physical DNA sample. All of our companies actually maintain your physical DNA sample in case you want to go back later and order more testing or for whatever reason. So you'd also want to think about if you want to have them actually destroy your sample. So it's kind of a two-part process, but you absolutely have control over that. You can tell the testing company, you know what? I've changed my mind. Please pull all of my data and destroy my sample. Interesting.
0: Okay. So now I know in the past, we've talked a little bit about some of the um, programs or surveys or... or um, groups that sometimes we can opt in and have them use our data anonymously as part of something else. When we remove our data, does that change that? Does that remove
3: people from those kinds of activities? Yeah, right. So this is the part that brings in the maybe, right? So Absolutely, yes, you can say right now today, I don't want my data on this testing company website anymore, and they will pull it off. But if you had opted into their research services when you signed up or at any point after, your data has been entered into a study. And you can think about a research project just like you would conduct at your school. You know, your teacher says, oh, you've got until October 22nd to get this data in, whatever. You know, there's there's project deadlines and project start and stop dates. So if you have entered, if your data has been entered into a project that is currently ongoing, you cannot pull your data from that project. It's part of that that data set that's being analyzed and it it will not be removed from that project. So you can obviously request that you aren't involved in any future projects, but any current projects that your data is a part of, it will continue to be a part of. But as you said, it is anonymous. All of those projects are anonymous.
0: Which I suppose is why they can't pull it because they probably identify (laughs) you, right? Exactly, yeah, good point. Okay, so do we have any, in between, do we have any alternatives for just
3: straight out deleting your data? It's such a good question. When you listed some of the reasons in the beginning here about why somebody might be thinking about doing this. In, and I think some of those reasons are really valid. You you took the test without thinking or understanding really what you were getting into, and now you're reading more about a specific company, perhaps, or a policy that they have, and you're not comfortable with that. Our companies are businesses, and they're evolving and changing too. And they may be changing the terms that they originally that you originally tested under. They weren't participating in this activity, and now they are. And as a business, they have that right. And maybe you're like, eh, no, thank you. I don't want to be a part of that activity. And that's the reason why you're changing, right? There's also people who have been discovering information about their biological family that's made them really question a lot of these processes and they're uncomfortable having their data out there now that it reflects something different about their biological family than what they originally intended. And they don't really want that information out right now. And so they're trying to kind of pull back and pull that information back off of the internet so that they have time to process it and understand it before it's kind of out there to the world. So there are lots of reasons why you may be considering doing this, Um, but there really isn't a halfway point. Either you're in the database and available or you're not, though there are some kind of workarounds. Uh, so, for example, at 23andMe, and they've always had this policy, you don't have to make yourself available to your DNA matches. That's a setting that yeah. you choose, right? So you can test and you can receive the information and data from their test, but you don't have to share your data with the database, essentially. So they're the easiest company to make that happen at. Um, Ancestry also has that ability um, for you to essentially pull your name off the match list. Uh, So then it's like you still kind of have all the benefits of your ethnicity report, for example, but your personal matching data is not part of the database.
0: Oh, very good to know. Okay. Well, all of this uh, information we're talking about kind of falls under privacy and privacy concerns around DNA. And of course, Diane has addressed these questions and other questions about privacy in her article on DNA test privacy over at Family Tree Magazine. And so I'm going to have a link for you guys in the show notes so that you can read the entire article. As always, thank you so much for being our DNA guide, Diane. Thanks for having me, Lisa. So far in this episode, Shannon Combs Bennett helped you find your ancestors' obituary. And now you're ready to locate their final resting place. And that's where author Sunny Morton enters the picture. She's here to help us navigate three of the largest cemetery websites that can help you do just that. Welcome back to the show, Sunny. Thank you, Lisa. It's wonderful to have you here because uh, this article is going to be a terrific help to us. It, it appears in the October 2021 issue of Family Tree Magazine. It's called Heavyweights. And you do kind of a head-to-head comparison of the three cemetery websites. Tell us which ones you're looking at.
4: Absolutely. So if we go like even headstone-to-headstone headstone comparison, <laughs> oh. that's it's kind of a sorry, I had to. because you had was, to, I know. I had to. I just had to go there. So we're looking at Billion Graves, We're looking at Find a Grave, and we're looking at Interment.net. And I bet you've heard at least of one of those three sites and maybe a couple of them, but maybe Interment.net is new to you. So I think it was really fun to compare the three of them and see how they stack up to each other.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's start with what the similarities are. What do these three websites have in common?
4: It's the tombstones. It's all about the tombstones. Awesome. And really, if you're looking for a final resting place and maybe you found it in that obituary that Shannon was talking about, um you're going to want to go look for that a burial record of some kind. And so the burial record for each of these, the the primary materials that they're looking at are the tombstones. And so each of these three websites has tombstone transcriptions, and um, on two of them you also find images of these tombstones. So, that's a, a really great help. It's an important, we often only think of our sources in genealogy as documents, but a tombstone is a source. It's a historical source, and it's definitely one we want to find
0: if, whenever we can. Absolutely. And they also have something very important in common, which is they're all free, am I right? They are all free. <laughs> and we free like that. Is the
4: best. <laughs> so you can go online and search at Billion Graves or Find a Grave or Interment.net. And I should say, and, 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 because you should be searching at all three of those. And it is entirely free to search at all of them. Will there be some overlap in what you find or don't find? Absolutely. Just like there is at every major genealogy website. But because they're created by you know, unique a unique pool of contributors who are taking an interest in different burial grounds from around the world, you do have a good chance of digging in and seeing what you can find and finding the things that you want at each one. So it's because they're free, because they're they're so easy to search. There's no reason not to search on all three of them.
0: Exactly. Well, now, you mentioned two of them have images of the tombstones. Which two do have the pictures?
4: So that would be Billion Graves and Find a Grave. And Billion Graves is best known for the GPS tagging that it does at the yes. tombstone. And, you know, you can you can get that kind of information sometimes over at Find a Grave, too. But at Billion Graves, this is like a primary focus for them capturing the location of the record is as important as what's written on the tombstone. So for them, they feel like the GPS capture there is part of documenting the record itself. Just like a source citation, where you say the publisher and the date and the website you found it on, that leads you right to it. Well, the GPS tag location on a billion graves tombstone image leads you right to it. It tells you at least that that's where that tombstone was at the time that it was imaged.
0: Exactly. And the more information, the better. So now you're kind of leading us down the path where they start to part ways a little bit. Let's talk about what are some of the differences. And and one, as you mentioned, that stands out with Billion Graves is the, the GPS. What else should we be looking for that differentiates them?
4: All right. Well, in continuing on with Billion Graves, comparing them to find a grave. So Billion Graves are just meant to be um, recordings of this particular source as an original uh, source of material, so it doesn't allow you to, uh, other users to go in and and create memorials and add lots of lots of other things to that particular image. It's that is supposed to be a standalone historical record. And you don't go in and say, oh, well, that's not actually correct, blah, blah, blah. So that in of itself is kind of different than what they're doing over on Find a Grave, which is also really great. They're over at Find a Grave, they're more creating lineage-linked memorial pages for people. And let me break that down for you just a little bit. So the idea of it being a memorial page is that, yeah, you go ahead and document that tombstone and whatever it says on the tombstone, but then people can also contribute lots of different kinds of information. Say they found that obituary, say they found they have a little biographical sketch, they can send that in to the person who manages that memorial or the owner of that memorial. And that person is kind of a gatekeeper to sort of. Um, edit and and approve information that gets attached to that memorial. So um, that's a, it then becomes a place to collect all of that information for that person. And then the lineage-linked part of it is you can also look at Find a Grave as a giant lineage-linked tree almost because for many of the entries, you're looking not just at that person's burial, but below the memorial image that you see are links to their parents' graves, links to their siblings, their spouses, their children. So, all of those first-degree relatives. And so, that's something that is also unique and really fun. Now, of course, it's only as accurate as the information it was provided with, and you always want to confirm yourself that, indeed, these are the correct relationships. But a lot of times, those are done by people who know something. They have reason for putting that in there. So, that is also a really great resource at Find a Grave now to pull in internment.net. And this was the one when I started out, Lisa, this is the one I was least familiar with it well, as well. And I was so excited to get to know a little more about them. So this is... Um, this is, we go back to the dawn of the internet era for this. <laughs> we learned, And we learned that the creator of this website, Steve Johnson, he started out by just creating a directory of cemetery records on his own personal website. And you know how that's going to explode, right? right? So eventually... People started sending him their own lists of tunesome transcriptions saying, hey, we don't have our own website. Will you please post this for us? And he's oh, like, no. uh, I was just pointing to other people's, but he started <laughs> doing it. And eventually it became what is now known as Interment.net." And so it's a little bit different over there because instead of individual records, people submit a list. And maybe it's from their family burial ground, or maybe it's from their neighborhood cemetery or whatever, but they do cemetery transcriptions of the tombstones, and then they upload those entire lists. And you can then, as a user, go in and search in those lists, but it's not the unit that you're looking at. You'll be looking within a list, but the unit that these are submitted at is an entire list. And so you don't have the photographs that go with
0: them and things like that. How interesting. Now, let's, let's dig into the heart of this the records. And you have a really nice handy dandy kind of um, graph on page 14 in this article, where you kind of break down some of the the highlights of each of the websites and number of records. Why don't you go over that for us?
4: Sure. Well, let's start with interment.net because we were just talking about them. So just collecting people's, you know, transcriptions, they're up to 25 million cemetery records, which is, you know, really fantastic. And of course, it's from different places around the world. And then we go to um, the next one would be, I would say, Billion Graves. And that, if we thought 25 million was a lot, Billion Graves has now 40 million GPS-tagged headstones. And then there's some of them that they don't have the headstone images for, but they still have records about them. So 140 million total. But that's, so 40 million of them that have the GPS-tagged headstones in them. And then if we thought that number was big, then we go over to find a grave and we have nearly 200 million gravestone memorials. So 190 million gravestone memorials. And most of those do have uh, pictures with them as well. So, I mean, just enormous numbers. Now, when we compare that to how many people have ever died, that's still, we have a long way to go before we have recorded the burial places of everybody on earth. And certainly we don't know about a lot of them, but this is a lot of data that is so easy to search because all three sites make it really easy to search.
0: Well, and that brings me to one of my final questions, which people might be already asking themselves is, is this just the United States or are we talking worldwide? You know, I
4: try to see how good of a global comparison I could do, but it's kind of hard to sort everything that way. So, But they are all global, so they're not limiting. Um, And you can look, and you'd you'd be surprised at some of the content you'll find. I think it's going to be strongest for the U.S., the U.K., um, and other English-speaking places, Um, but you'd be surprised at what you find for out-of-the-way places. So certainly... Think of this not just as a resource for, you know, finding your nearest and dearest, but also maybe people a little further back on your tree or who were buried thousands of miles from where you now live.
0: I imagine for many of these, um, you have a lot of volunteers who work on them, so they might be a little more focused on the much older grave sites. Would that be a correct statement?
4: Um, I would say that that's probably true, especially over at interment.net is where you're going to see some of these compilers that have been doing this for a long time, long before you could, you know, do it individually, uh, stone by stone. Over at a Billion Graves or at Find a Grave, they were compiling these great lists. And a lot of them have made their way to interment.net. And one of the ones, for example, that I give as an example in the article is the British military graveyard in Balancholic, Ireland. And this person, I was looking at this particular one, and it was really cool because she wasn't just reading the stones. She took what she read from the stones and then went and consulted all kinds of other transcriptions. or or gravestone inscriptions, church records, death certificates, military records, local newspapers, anything she could find locally to try to put the story of this burial together, this person. So some of these are really well informed beyond just the basics of a burial
0: information. You might get lucky depending on who you're looking for. You might get lucky. (laughs) Well, anything else that will help us get lucky? Do you have any um, tips or suggestions, tricks for us?
4: Well, I absolutely suggest going to the article itself because I gave a lot of step-by-step tips for using and searching the websites. And especially if you want to, um, at a couple of them, you're allowed to, you know, send in some additional information or clarification. And I give you tips for what you can and can't do, kind of the changes that can and can't be made to help make these accurate, these records more accurate. So definitely go to the article itself. It's got a lot for you there.
0: Excellent. Well, the article is called Heavyweights. And it is in the September, October 2021 issue of Family Tree Magazine. Always good to talk to you, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lisa. Well, as we wrap up this episode, of course, we always like to stop by the editor's desk to see what's going on over at Family Tree Magazine. And uh, this month, we've got Andrew Cook, the editor of the magazine. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Lisa. Well, we've been really digging into cemeteries and obituaries and graves and all kinds of things in this episode. And that's kind of the theme you've got going on in the September-October 2021 issue of the magazine as well, isn't it?
5: Yeah, we uh, thought, you know, just in time for Halloween and the celebration of All Souls Day on November 1st, that we'd dedicate this issue all to grave research.
0: Cool. Well, we've talked to Sonny Morton. So we talked about her um, terrific article, uh, the heavyweights article, and we talked a lot about the website. But you've got a couple other really good features in here. And one of them seems to be kind of um, around the area of preserving tombstones. And since we may be visiting graves here to do some research, what kind of tips do you have from that article?
5: Yeah, the, the articles by an author named Joy Neighbors, she's been on the podcast before and yes. she's blogged at a grave interest and cemeteries are really her thing. Um, and she shares some great tips for how to approach a tombstone that you think might be damaged, how to recognize what the damage is. And really, and I think this is important too, to to recognize what you can and cannot fix yourself as many of us, uh, I know I certainly don't have the right expertise or equipment to Um, repair large cracks and that kind of thing by myself. So um, that's one of my big takeaways from her article was sort of know what your limits are, know what your expertise is, um, and know when to consult an expert too.
0: Yeah, I agree. You know, a lot of us have been doing genealogy for a long time. You know, there was a day where you could just head to the nearby cemetery and you could, you know, <laughs> touch it, clean it up, do whatever you wanted. Mm-hmm. But, but that's not so much the case. People are more careful about that because it can cause damage, right?
5: Right. And so I know Joy really focuses on what you can do to enhance letters on tombstones using water, uh, using smaller tools like scissors to clean up grass around a tombstone rather than doing anything that's going to be too ta- um, caustic or damage the stone further.
0: Yeah. And of course, bring your trusty camera. I know Joy is an avid photographer and mm-hmm. that's another terrific way to to capture the information instead of doing the old fashioned rubbings, which we highly discourage. Um, yeah. What are the kinds of uh, articles? Gosh, there's a couple of things you've got. Well, you've got an article in here. Tell us about that.
5: Yeah. I wanted to take us back to the basics with source citation. I know that uh, it's something that a lot of people maybe feel some anxiety about or, I compare it to flossing your teeth or doing your taxes, that kind of thing that nobody wants to do, but you really should. And so uh, we look at some different ways of approaching source citations, what key kind of information you want to include in there, and uh, how to make it a little less scary, a little less tiresome.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I've got my Lisa's Picks column, and I'm I'm harvesting in this column. Uh, I went up to a friend's. Um, look, my friend's homestead and it helped them. I learned how to drive a tractor, Andrew. Can you believe
5: that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I have the picture. There's a great photo of, of you in there on one. And exactly. It's, yeah. Really fun.
0: Yes. So I hope everybody will check that out. And I've got a couple of, um, again, some of my favorite picks for things that you'll want in your genealogy toolkit. So there's lots to glean from the September, October 2021 issue of Family Tree Magazine. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for joining me for this October 2021 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast and uh, you're listening to the show through one of the uh, popular podcast apps, maybe over at Apple or Google Podcasts, do us a favor, or leave us a five-star review and that will help tell other genealogists about this show. And as always, I'll have links to everything we talked about in today's episode at familytreemagazine.com podcast. Again, don't miss the special September-October 2021 issue of Family Tree Magazine. It's called Grave Research. It's available now. You can We'll have a link in the show notes where you can pick up a digital copy, if you don't already have it, uh, over at our store. Or, of course, subscribe to the magazine. And in addition to all the great articles we talked about today, uh, take a look for Lisa's picks. It's there every issue. And uh, this month, it's bushels full of ancestors. Just in time for the fall harvest. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and uh, you can visit me over at my website, genealogygems.com, and there you'll find the Genealogy Gems podcast and my weekly YouTube live show. And don't miss Family Tree Magazine on YouTube as well. Just do a quick search for Family Tree Magazine in the search field at youtube.com. Until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.